0: Welcome back to the Create a Relationship You Love Summit. I'm your host, Andrea Carella, Licensed Professional Clinical Counselor. As you know, the benefits of this summit are to help couples create satisfying relationships and to communicate authentically with more harmony, understanding, and passion. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Neola Sparkus, and she is a spiritual coach and practitioner who has studied under Michael Bernard Beckwith at the Agape International Institute of Spiritual Practice. And today she's going to be covering the How to Dissolve Your Emotional Blocks and Five Steps to Creating the Love We Desire. Welcome today uh, for our talk today. Thank you, Andrea. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Wonderful. I know we're going to be covering some really great material from releasing emotional triggers to releasing blocks of our shadow selves. Uh, the differences between men and women and how we communicate, physical intimacy, and different love styles. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Yes, it's it's a wide-ranging one, and we're going to have a lot of fun with this. So I'm looking forward to it. Sounds great. Wonderful. My first question is, how do we gracefully release and recover from emotional triggers that come up in our relationship? How do we deal with that?
1: Yeah, you know, I I came up with this report. It's available on my homepage on my website. And I came up with it because of the process that I had to figure out for myself because I am a highly emotional person and I was not responding in a mature manner when these emotions would just, you know, take me over and they would feel absolutely overwhelming to me. And I have to say, it took me, you know, a lifetime of practice and understanding and learning and studying and figuring things out for myself. And in the report on my website, I think I go into like 15 different steps, so I don't want to overwhelm everybody. But the gist of it, and I have done a lot of studying of emotional intelligence in general, and there's a great book by that name, and I forget the name of the two Uh, writers. They're a husband and wife uh, therapist team who came up and they have so many fabulous things to say, but I actually formulated my process and then I read their book afterwards and I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, our paths really do cross over because these are the truths. So the one thing about emotional intelligence in, in general is that you do need to know how to appropriately modulate your emotions. So What I tell people in the first step is, you know, when you notice you're overwhelmed with your emotions, see if you can relax yourself, take a deep breath, because the thing about the emotions is they come from our survival self. The survival brain is always looking for what's the problem, what's wrong, how can I be in danger, and how can I protect myself? And this is what happens when two people get intimate. We're talking to couples here today when we get close to each other, we tend to overstep each other's boundaries. We have let that other person into our inner portal, inner space. And now they start rubbing up against parts of us that we're not comfortable with. And so the emotions can start to fly and this can escalate. So the first thing to notice is, okay, my survival self is telling me I'm feeling threatened and there's some kind of danger, which there's not. It's just me and my partner here. And I know we ultimately love each other and we got to sort something out. The first step is, you know, just see, see what you can do to really relax yourself. Try to be calm. This is where couples can take a time out. It's like, okay, I got to go off to my room and recompose myself before we can continue this conversation. So most importantly, don't let your feelings dictate how you act. And then the second thing to notice, so many couples are in the habit of, well, you made me feel this way. Oh, yeah. Well, when you said that, you made me feel this way. So we have to take responsibility and ownership for our own emotional reaction. It's so easy to say, oh, that person made me do it. But the feeling is in your body. You're the one having this response another person might not have that same response if your partner had said whatever they said to them. So this is truly your emotion and your feeling. And then I go through a whole uh, bunch of steps about how you can process your emotion, which is so important to go into the emotion, explore it. This is something you do on your own,
0: <laughs> mm. not not with
1: your partner, but you, you go into it and you will learn, and you will know, and you will notice, that our emotions probably were put in place pretty much by the time we were seven years old. And this is what we're carrying in our nervous system. Uh, up until we're seven, our brain functions on different levels there. The the deeper levels of brainwave that are very open, absorbing everything like a sponge. And we come to certain conclusions about life, about safety, about how to handle things, what is a threat, what is not. And this is the stuff that lives in our nervous system unless we heal it. And you, as a therapist, know there is a way to heal these emotions. So Mm -hmm. it's important to face them, listen to the message. Feel them fully so you can release them from your body so you're not taking them around with you, keeping them in your body so that they can get triggered again, you know, by the next person and so forth. And one of the things when I was training to be a spiritual practitioner, which I found to be amazing when I heard, I read in a book by Ernest Holmes, he said, refuse to have your feelings hurt. And I was like, what? I have a choice over this? He says, refuse to receive anybody's condemnation. Refuse to use any situation against yourself. And that was a huge revelation for me because when we are blaming somebody else for how we feel, it's like we're saying, I'm going to take what you just said and use it against myself. And I'm going to attack myself with what you said. Now, maybe my partner did say something scathing or critical. But the thing that we need to realize is what they are saying is actually more about them and not about us. So we need to get very clear what they're saying is about them. I don't have to take it against myself. I don't have to give in to The side of myself that wants to be a victim, I heard another fabulous therapist say, when couples argue, what they're really doing is they're both vying for the position of victim. It's like, no, you hurt me more than I hurt you. No, you hurt me more than you hurt me, you know, or whatever the argument is. It's like we're Mm -hmm. arguing to take the position of victim. Now, how empowering is that? You know, not not at all. As soon as you take a position of victim, you have just given up your power. You're saying the other person has more power over you and your emotional response than you do. So this is where it's so important to, you know, process your own emotions, uh, see what the message is there for you. There is something that was placed into your nervous system, figure out how to release it. And then, of course, in that same report, I have my five-part process for what to do how to word it, to ask the other person for what you need. Like once you've processed your emotion on your own, obviously there's something that you need from this conversation that you're not getting. And so you have to get clear on what you need because it's very unhelpful for us to tell our partner what's wrong, what you don't like about what they said, what they didn't do right. It's very frustrating for the person feeling that because... They want to know how to make it better. So instead of going through all of that blame, 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 get clear what you need, and then there's a five-part process, which very quickly it's like acknowledge the other person, Uh, say I've been thinking about this and that, make your request, maybe you can this, would you be willing to do that, ask if they'd be willing, and then appreciate them. I'm so grateful that you have taken the time to listen to me And to feel that my needs are important. And then I also, as the final steps of this whole long report about how to recover gracefully from an emotional trigger, if you cannot speak to the other person for whatever reason, they are unreasonable, they have narcissistic personality disorder, you know, whatever it is, they will not take responsibility. Most important thing that we can do for ourselves is do a lot of forgiveness work and send them blessings. You know, this is so hard for us to do when we feel we've been wronged, we're definitely right, they're definitely wrong. But that kind of a stance, again, it disempowers you, puts you in the position of victim, doesn't help you, and you're the one carrying all that energy around with yourself. And of course, latest scientific studies show that the more of this funky energy, emotional energy we carry around with ourselves, it causes sickness. this It's stress on our bodies, on our systems. So we're the ones that we are honoring when we forgive somebody else. And if you can't find a way to forgive them, then, you know, pray for guidance. Pray that you might become willing to find a way to forgive.
0: Right. So that like a, a, mantra, a mantra I like to use is, let me see this through loving eyes. Let me go. see this through... Through my higher self's eyes to be able to help when, you know, our ego is hurt, it's hard to rise above it. So sometimes just a willingness to ask for to see it differently than what the way that we currently see it can help shift our perception of things. And I think you brought up such interesting uh, points and pieces of wisdom. So thank you so much for. The thoroughness of that of that question and just that step by step process that people on the call can incorporate, and then really just that uh, taking ownership and that responsibility of our own emotional landscape and behavioral landscape, because that really allows us to to feel like we can be part of the change that we want to see in our relationships and in our life. So thank you for covering that. That was very helpful.
1: Yeah, it's it's a bit lengthy, and of course, it's something that people practice. And once you get into the practice and the habit of it, it becomes quick and easy and natural.
0: Great. Talking about men and women and how we have different communication styles, do you have some ideas on ways that people on the call can decode or demystify some of these differences so that we can actually bridge the gap and understand one another more clearly and better? Yes, there is such a
1: spectrum Along this, uh, differences between men and women. I don't want to get all black and white about it because obviously these days I actually coach a lot of women who are more masculine. And as such, they have a tendency to attract to themselves a partner if they're with a man that is more feminine. And so I don't want to get into these generalizations. But one of the common differences, and I am just going to speak from my own experience, the frustration that I went through with my husband, and we've been together for over 19 years. Reverend Michael married us back in 1997. Mm. So I have this need, I guess, and I'm going to call it maybe a feminine need, to just let my feel express my feelings, like Oh, I went through this day and I was talking with this person and they said this and that made me feel this. And my husband wants to run in and fix it. He wants to go, oh, well, maybe if you would have said this or maybe if that person or maybe you should have asked for. And this starts to make me feel so frustrated, like no, 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 you know, I feel like I'm being made wrong or something like that. So Mm. in in general, there is a tendency for a man to want to fix something and for a woman to want to express her feelings. Now, on the flip side, I have found myself in the exact opposite situation where I'm listening to my husband talk about his feelings and I'm trying to fix something for him and he gets frustrated. And, you know, finally, we have learned this about each other. And he's, we just, you know, just last night, he said to me, honey, you don't need to fix me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I sometimes give that actually as advice to a client of mine. Just the other day, I was coaching a wife who was wondering how best to enlist her husband in some changes she wanted to see in the relationship. And I said, you know what? Guys like to fix stuff. So you can say, oh, gosh, I feel so this way or that way about what's going on in the house or in the, you know, whatever order, bringing order. I want the house to look clean. I want the living room to always have stuff picked up. And the desire of the husband to fix something will go, oh, well, I've got a great idea. How about every night after I'm done watching TV, I'll put away all the remotes and all this and that and you know, all that stuff. And they come up with a plan and it's like, yes, you can use that to help you to give you what you need. So that's, you know, those main differences. And then, of course, every couple is unique. And of course, we have all different styles of communication, depending on our family of origin. In some couple's they're very open with their feelings and talk about everything that they feel with other couples maybe even just one of the partners is completely uncomfortable talking about feelings doesn't even know what their feelings are don't doesn't even know how to access them so these are different kind of challenges and you can i highly recommend for people who have a tough time accessing their feelings to spend time and silence and doing some deep work. And I have some guided meditations on my website, too, that can help people to really listen to their inner messages and their inner voices and things like that.
0: Mm, So great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, I think the next piece uh, that I'd love us to explore, and I know that you have a list of of 12 of these, so I don't know if we can get to all of them, but the different stages to physical intimacy. Since we have a lot of couples on the call and obviously physical intimacy is part of the relationship dynamics, it can be helpful to have a step-by-step process on how to cultivate that physical connection. So could you guide us through some of those stages and how couples on the call can implement some of them? I came up with this list
1: because when I am coaching singles who are looking for a partner and I find that so many jump into total full-on physical intimacy right away before they're emotionally connected and before they feel ready to do it And I thought, you know, what happened to the old days when we gradually would get physical with each other and every step of the way was so exciting. Even I'm thinking back like on my teen years that it's like, oh my God, he looked at me. He looked at me and that was so exciting when you have not had physical intimacy with a boy yet. It was like, Oh my God, he looked at me and that'll keep you going for days, you know, and you talk to your girlfriend about it, you know, when we're, we're so young and we haven't been through this yet. So I came up with this list to remind us to savor every step of the way and the purpose of savoring every step of the way is so that we don't get physically intimate too quickly before we're emotionally ready and before we really feel enough of a connection with the the other person. Now, sometimes this can work also for couples who are sexually estranged. Perhaps they've been married for a long time. Perhaps they've let certain differences go unresolved. They've built up walls to each other. They've built up defense mechanisms. And they don't know how to reach out to each other anymore. And this is what brings them to physical, uh, to couples therapy, I should say, couples counseling is that they don't know how to reach out to each other. They realize they want to. They want to patch up their relationship. They want to work it out. How do they get there? The important thing is to go slowly and to really feel each step of the way. So I mentioned the first step. Actually, I got this list, believe it or not, from an article that's uh, written by a woman who teaches novelists how to unfold the sex scenes in their romantic novels. You know, she's teaching writers what steps to go through before you take the reader to the ultimate climax to build the anticipation. (laughs) Yeah, build the anticipation, exactly. But it is based on scientific research by a fellow named Desmond Morris who wrote Intimate Behavior, a Zoologist's Classics, study of human intimacy the first stage he says is eye to body you know registering an overall impression of the other and a man will not approach a woman without first giving her a good once over with his eyes and appreciating the package and then of course the next step that we talked about is eye to eye it's like oh my god he looked right at me you know that's intimate That's really intimate. Now, once uh, you've established eye contact, maybe somebody's going to speak. So the next step is voice to voice. You start to speak to each other. This is getting more intimate. You're sharing your feelings with each other. You know, so when we're on a date, it's so nice to just go through these stages. First, the eye contact, the appreciating of the physical package the other person is in speaking with each other. And then the next step after that, would be hand-to-hand, touch of the hand across the table, or hand-to-arm, you know, touching someone's arm, rubbing their forearm. That's breaking the first boundary of physical intimacy. So for couples who've been married and together for a while, if you're having dinner together, even just, you know, casual dinner at home, you touch each other's hand, you hold each other's hand across the table. I call that foreplay, I tell my couples, you know what, do a lot of this stuff through the day. And then at night, the two of you will want to be
0: physically intimate so badly with each other because you've been preparing each other all day long. Right. And the voice to voice is that you can use terms of endearment. Yeah. um, Those words of of appreciation for each other that can be part of the foreplay with that stage. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then the stage after that is
1: arm to shoulder, putting your arms around each other, putting your arms around each other's shoulder, arm to waist, arm to back, the way we kind of gently guide each other through a doorway or something, Uh, or, you know, being, touching right above your bottom or even the little pat on the bottom, right? And then, of course, that leads to the rest of it. Now we're getting into kissing, and now we're getting in, and, and actually this writer said, hand to head is more intimate so you're kissing someone you put their your hand like on the back of their head and that is greater intimacy than just our lips touching and then hand to body and then I'm going to leave the rest to your imagination
0: you can <laughs> you can read all the stages on my blog great wonderful and one of them is related to the love styles that we have. And sometimes we may not even understand what our love style is unless we have a clear picture. So could you help us understand what the different love styles are so that our audience members can determine what kind of love style is they lean towards?
1: Right. This
0: was also in
1: response. I did some research. You know, when I hear people so frustrated with each other because they have a different way of loving. And this is different from that book. The Five
0: Love Languages. There you go. It's a five little bit different. Languages.
1: Right. Mm. This actually goes back to 1973, an author by the name of John Allen Lee. He's the first one who identified six different love styles, and he categorizes them according to their Greek name. The first style is called Eros. And Eros is a passionate, physical, and emotional love of wanting to satisfy, to create sexual contentment, and to create security. This is your typical, traditional, monogamous relationship, which, you know, two people just create this intense physical intimacy and emotional intimacy, and the security that goes along with that. These days, there's so much experimentation with different ways that we can be together in intimacy that I think it's worth taking a look at all these other ones if you feel like you don't fall into that traditional category. So the second one he called Ludus. And this is love based on just wanting to have fun, engaging in activities together, indoors, outdoors, teasing, playing, jokes. And these are the kind of people who love to
0: serial mm-hmm. dating. There
1: you go. It's it's not about commitment. It's about acquiring love and just it's part of the game and just have fun. And you might be that kind of person for your whole life. Or I know when I was in between my two marriages after I got out of my first marriage, which was fairly dysfunctional, didn't really work for me, I was like, oh, my God, I so don't want to be serious for a long time. I just want to get out there, see what's available, learn about myself, learn about men. And that's when I was in that phase. Just go play, have fun and enjoy yourself. And after I think it was about five years for me, I had enough of that stage. And I realized,
0: okay, now I'm ready to really uh, make a
1: commitment with somebody
0: so is, uh, is basically the second style, is this more of a non-commitment, or could a very committed partnership have this style incorporated in their monogamous relationship of fun and pleasure and joking?
1: Well, the way that he defines it, this is a person who really doesn't want the commitment. Mm. If you want to have fun and play within a committed, secure, monogamous relationship, that gets back to eros. OK, which is passionate, you know, it's passionate and it's emotionally intimate. OK. And then the third stage is called storage, which is a long term love that grows out of friendship first. So sometimes I hear love coaches say the best relationship is be friends first and then let the physical intimacy desire grow out of that. And it sounds like great advice. And I do believe that uh, friendship is very important for long-term relationship, but this isn't for everybody. There are some people who really feel that friendship is the most important thing. And so you're going to clash with somebody who's really passionate and just wants a lot of sex all the time, and you're interested in having more of a friendship base. And you know, we hear of married couples that say, ah, we feel like brother and sister, but they don't have a problem with it. And if you don't have a problem with it, then maybe that's the way you want your relationship to be. But if you are with somebody who wants just passion and there are those who want drama, you know, then that's not the person for you, and that could be the clash in your relationship styles. And you know, then there's pragma, which is practical love. This is where women, younger women, will marry an older man who's got money. Very practical. A lot of us want to judge that and say, well, she's just a gold digger or whatever we say, right? But this is some people are very oriented and there's certain cultures, entire cultures that marry based on what the material goods are going to be in a relationship. And as a matter of fact, this was the way That people got married up until I think about 200 years ago is when we got the idea during Victorian era that there can be romance in a marriage. You know, before it was unheard of, you marry for practical reasons, you have your lover on the side, you know. (laughs) And then the, the two other types I will just go over briefly, mania is obsessive love where one objectifies their partner and puts them on a pedestal And, you know, this type of person maybe just wants to be manic and obsessed about love. Who are we to judge? Maybe they're happy that way. But, you know, it's definitely not for everybody. And if you're the object of that person's mania, either you love it or you hate it. So you have to be aware of that. And the final stage is agape, which is self-sacrificing, magnanimous, altruistic love where somebody's willing to endure any suffering. For their partner's happiness so this is unconditional love and it's fabulous and ideal to be unconditionally loving but this one has a component of being really thinking of the other person first so we would call it a codependent type of love and sometimes you make people aware of their codependency and they go but this is who I am and they're happy being that way so who am I as a coach or a counselor to say okay you need to heal from that If they're happy, you know, giving all to their partner, wanting nothing for themselves, and they don't feel hurt. I mean, this is, you know, you have to be very careful if you're really just using that as an excuse to push down all the hurts so that you can remain a victim. But anyway, that's it in a nutshell, the sick
0: love styles. Great, wonderful. So I just want to cover one last question. I know that this is an an area that and a subject that you talk about quite a lot, and it's about releasing blocks and healing our shadow selves. So I'm wondering how can we do that so that we can be more authentic in our relationships and ultimately create a relationship and the relationship that we desire? Yeah, so
1: one of the problems of being human is we have blind spots It's like we don't see our face unless we look in a mirror. And we also don't see our belief patterns that are running us unless somebody outside of us is being our mirror and our reflection for what is going on within us. And again, we have the tendency to project outward what we don't own or see in ourselves. So we go, wow, that person is to blame. That person is to at fault. Look what they're doing. And actually, you have to ask yourself, well, what is it inside of me that is a match, a vibrational match for what this person is representing in my life? Now, this takes courage and it takes maturity and it takes a desire to take a, a responsibility for your relationship. I do help people to see what they cannot see, because it's usually some kind of a belief that we embodied and decided on usually before in the age of seven. I mean, I do believe, uh, apart from other teachings that say that this is all, all from childhood, I believe that you can come to certain conclusions just based on your last relationship that didn't go well too, you know. So we do have constant beliefs that are running us that we have to question we have to ask ourselves wait a minute where am I going wrong what am I believing that is not serving me who do I think I am that really is not the truth or to find out what your blind spot is ask yourself who do I never want to be because if you really are afraid of being that or feel a strong emotion about being that chances are you've repressed it into your shadow. So there's all kinds of processes that I do to help people to see their shadow. And once you can break through that, that releases so much power that you had repressing the stuff you didn't want to see so that now you have more power to attract what you want or to be your authentic self in the relationship that you are engaged in.
0: Right. Because I would imagine our shadow selves takes up a lot of bandwidth in our mind and in our energetic being. So once we clear that, it opens up space for more downloads or new, new ways to connect with ourselves with really maybe something Absolutely. deeper within ourselves so that we can be more accessible and open and have clarity in, in our uh, relationships yeah. with others. Absolutely, absolutely. That's so great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for for being on this TeleSummit, uh Neola, and I really just enjoyed this conversation and everything that we covered. You're going to be offering a free gift to our audience members. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how they can access that? Yes, so it is a 90-minute audio teleclass. It's called Creating
1: Your Best Love Ever. And I created it in response to questions that I received from my community. And so I answer questions about how to identify and process your fears, the difference between self-love and self-esteem, and the 10 areas of self-love to practice. And I also answer questions about how to best take care of yourself if you feel you're tending to lose yourself in a relationship. I also address uh, trust issues And um, how long to stay with a prospective partner, if you're not sure if they're the one or not. And then at the end, I also share the most powerful tool for transforming your relationships and releasing a lot of shadow energy. So I'm going to leave that as a mystery so that people will want to access that audio teleclass. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It was
0: really a joy uh, chatting with you today. Thank you so much, Andrea, for the opportunity. It was my pleasure. Great. And I'm your host, Andrea Carella, licensed professional counselor with True Potential Counseling. And just to recap, what we covered today on our talk with Neola is how to gracefully release and recover from emotional triggers, how to release blocks and heal our shadow selves, how to decode the differences between men and women and how we communicate, the different stages of physical intimacy and how you can apply that into your day-to-day dynamic with your partner, and the different love styles that are a part of the different types of love that could be aspects of your own relationship or aspects that you you desire to have. So stay tuned for tomorrow where you'll find our next interview in the Create a Relationship You Love Summit series. I can't wait to connect with you then. Have a great day.